As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, nō mai, mai. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Claire Kincannon tēnei. In January, the Hongatonga Honga Haapai volcano erupted with immense force, sending shockwaves around the world. It also triggered a tsunami that radiated across the Pacific, from Alaska to South America to Aotearoa, and generated tsunami activity as far away as the Mediterranean. The size and scale of this event surprised scientists, who generally consider tsunamis triggered by volcanoes to only have localized impacts. Auckland-based science communicator Ellen Rikers brings us this story about the science behind this rare natural disaster. It started with rumbling windows and bangs heard across the Pacific. From Fiji to New Zealand to Alaska, there were several of them in succession, like cannons firing or fireworks in the distance, more of a distant boom than a crack. The rest of my family very definitely did hear them. They were actually away in the mountains and they, they, they came back and they were like, yeah, it was really weird. It was like there was some hunters that were sort of firing lots of shots in the next valley over, but it was sort of a bit more sort of boomy rather than cracky, you know, like, uh, like a gunshot. And they were like, yeah, I couldn't work out what it was. And I was like, congratulations, you've just heard a, um, a volcano erupting. It was Saturday, 15 January. And NIWA tsunami scientist Dr Emily Lane returned home from her mountain run to discover a text. A volcano, Hungatonga Hungahaapai, located 65 kilometres north of Tonga's capital, had erupted, blanketing the Tongan archipelago in ash and sending tsunami waves barreling over the low-lying islands. I actually was was aware of um, Hungatonga Hungahapai before it erupted because there had been a smaller eruption the previous day that had caused a small tsunami, and so it was it was on my radar that things were happening there. Uh, but certainly, when I heard this one, I wasn't expecting anything near as big as what actually happened. Initially, the Pacific nation was unreachable. We'd later learn that the tsunami claimed the lives of four people in Tonga. A tragic toll, but one that could have been a lot higher. Meanwhile, satellite images of a massive smoky cloud blooming across the South Pacific spread across the globe. At the same time, the literal shockwave of the eruption and the resulting tsunami spread across the globe too. 
for, for all that it you know has been a, a devastating event, it's also been very interesting in a lot of ways. That's Dr Colin Whitaker, a senior lecturer in civil engineering hydraulics at the University of Auckland. His research focuses on the mechanics and impacts of destructive waves, including tsunamis. If you had asked me the day before the event whether an eruption in Tonga would cause any damage in New Zealand, uh, I would have fairly confidently answered no. Overnight, a tsunami hit parts of New Zealand's coast, causing damage at places like Tutukaka and Northland. The tsunami reached the farthest corners of the Pacific, with impacts from Japan to South America. Then it went even further. Tsunami activity was detected in both the Caribbean and Mediterranean. But how on earth does a tsunami originating in the Pacific end up creating waves in the Caribbean and Mediterranean? We'll come back to that in a second, but first, let's back up. How do you make a tsunami in the first place? Most tsunamis are sort of caused by geological things. So the most common one is an earthquake tsunami, and that's sort of literally there's an earthquake under the sea. It moves the sea floor, which moves the water above it, and that radiates out as a wave. Around 80% of all tsunamis are caused by earthquakes. Then you can get things like landslide tsunamis, which, you know, it's sort of a landslide either subaerial, so in the air that falls into the water, or submarine, so it starts underwater. Finally, we have volcanic tsunamis, like the one triggered by the eruption of Hungatonga Hungaha'apai. These are exceptionally rare. The eruption was very interesting. Normally, our general wisdom is that a volcanic eruption it can generate a tsunami, but that that tsunami is unlikely to cross the globe and do damage very far away. We, we normally call these near-field events where the destruction tends to be contained uh, to an, a region fairly close to the eruption. It's the first recorded tsunami triggered by a volcano since Indonesia's Krakatoa erupted back in 1883, and the first one scientists have been able to study in depth with modern equipment. The size of the eruption was incredible. The the other incredible thing about it that, that it shares with Krakatau was the fact that the tsunami really was a global tsunami. To understand the far-reaching impacts of Hungatonga Hungaha'apai, you need to know a little bit about how volcanoes can set tsunamis in motion. So whereas earthquake tsunamis are fairly simple, the earth moves, the water moves. There are lots of different mechanisms at play when it comes to volcanoes making tsunamis. The, the really interesting thing about volcanic tsunamis is that there's a whole lot of different ways that a volcano can generate a tsunami. So the, the a submarine eruption, you know, literally the explosion itself can blow the water away and that can cause a tsunami. You can have a pyroclastic density current, which is where you have a lot of uh, volcanic rock and ash ejected into the atmosphere. It falls back down, it's often very hot, and when that enters the water, it can violently displace enough water to generate a tsunami. You can get flank collapse, so volcanic islands are made of sort of ash and volcanic debris and and so they're rel relatively unstable so large parts of them can actually sort of slip down and so you can have it's essentially a landslide tsunami but it's caused because it's a, a volcano and the act of the volcano erupting can trigger that landslide. You can also have caldera collapse which is where the top of the volcano collapses in on itself once it has expelled all the magma from its belly. It's likely that there were a few of these different collapses and currents involved 
And we'll come back to that a bit later. But there's one more mechanism that made hunga tonga hunga haapai a worldwide phenomenon. It's called a meteor tsunami. Meteor tsunamis are caused by fast-moving pressure anomalies. Now, most of the time we don't have volcanic eruptions that cause them. Most of the time they can be caused by either fast-moving squalls or rapidly moving cyclones. So essentially, the volcanic explosion generated an air pressure shockwave that circled the globe, causing a spike in air pressure followed by a rapid drop. Across the Pacific, these shockwaves manifested as the booms we heard earlier. I mean, you can think of pressure as, you know, where there's high pressure, it's actually literally pushing down more. Where there's low pressure, it's literally, you know, not pushing as much. And so you can actually change the water surface by that variation in pressure. This air pressure wave was moving at around the same speed as the water waves generated by the eruption, around 1,000 kilometres per hour. This meant it could pump energy into those water waves, supercharging them and giving them the oomph to travel right across the Pacific. Plus, because it's an air pressure wave, it can leapfrog land masses. It doesn't matter that there's um, Central America in the way it just sort of continues on going in the atmosphere and, and sort of regenerates the tsunami on the other side. So that, you know, people knew about that as a mechanism but this is the first time that that's been seen when we can when we've actually got all of the the modern sort of um, scientific measuring equipment, the the you know the pressure gauges everywhere, the tsunami gauges everywhere to actually sort of pick that up and see that happening. The meteor tsunami picked up on gauges in the Mediterranean measured only a few centimeters, compared to two meter waves detected in South America, the 1.3 meter tsunami in the Horiki Gulf here in Aotearoa and waves up to 18 metres which swept over the Kanakapolo Peninsula on the western side of Tongatapu, Tonga's main island. These volcanic meteor tsunamis sort of are, you know, they're, they're a bit of a gating changer because they can actually, you know, cause a tsunami a long way away. And, and I mean, the, the fascinating thing about that too is that in New Zealand, the tsunami we saw here is probably a mixture of the two. Because in places like Japan and like South America, you, you can actually model the pretty much what they saw there just using that meteo tsunami. So, so that's sort of just what they saw. Whereas in New Zealand, I'm pretty sure, you know, so, so we're still sort of working on this, but I'm pretty sure that you actually need the original tsunami as well as that. And so that that pressure anomaly will have, pumped extra energy into it, but what we saw is a combination of the two. We tend to think of tsunamis as a giant breakwave bearing down on the coast day after tomorrow style. And with this mental image, a tsunami of a few centimetres might not seem like a big deal. In Nukualofa, Tonga's capital, the tsunami measured 1.2 metres. But what's dangerous about tsunamis is that they keep on coming and they don't stop coming. Essentially, sort of a bit of a wall of water, and I mean, it might only, it might be sort of thirty centimeters or fifty centimeters high, and even at that high, it can cause um, problems. So imagine, sort of, it's a little bit like a wall of water coming up a a river, and so I mean, it can it can erode things. Sometimes, if it can sort of reflect around, it can sort of double in height quite quickly. And I mean, if it just keeps on coming, it can actually sort of 
inundate things. And some people sort of imagine it, it's got to be this sort of crashing wave that's sort of like bigger than you and sort of comes over you. The devastating tsunami in the Indian Ocean back in 2004 was a prime example of this, according to Emily. In Sri Lanka, in the Indian Ocean tsunami, I've seen pictures there of you know where it, people were killed from this. But it was this sort of this wall of water that came in. It wasn't particularly high, but it just kept on coming. And then the next one came after it and just sort of so much water came in. And then when it all comes out and it it might be sort of a meter or so high, but it's going so fast that you can't actually stand against it and you you get washed away. Plus, in bays and harbours, the small tsunami waves bounce off the coast, reinforcing each other, creating some funky and unpredictable currents. Here's Colin Whitaker again. You can think of that like if you pluck a guitar string, you get a note. If you get a wave of the right frequency entering this harbour or bay, you might get really big waves generated for quite some time. And so that's what happened uh, in some New Zealand locations and also uh, in some of the locations in the United States. So what actually happened at Hongatonga Hongaha Apai? We know the meteor tsunami was stirred up by the huge air pressure shockwave. What about the other mechanisms like collapses or fast-flowing currents of hot volcanic debris? Were any of these at play? Volcanic eruptions are very complicated because there are a lot of different ways that they can generate a tsunami, and often some of these can happen at the same time. Uh, And so with the Tonga eruption, um, just as one example, you probably had different mechanisms responsible for some of what we saw very nearby, um, uh, in Tonga, for example. Uh, And then you had a very different mechanism responsible for some of the destruction around the edge of the Pacific and for the waves that reached the Mediterranean. One key piece of evidence about the mechanisms involved comes from the International Telecommunications Cable, which connects Tonga to the rest of the world. It was broken at some point during the eruption, and its fate could reveal more of Hungatonga Hungahaapai's secrets. So that international cable had actually got cut relatively late in the piece. When they actually went to look for the international cable, it wasn't just that there was a break in the cable. Basically, there's 30 or 40 kilometres of the cable that are completely destroyed. In some places, it's shredded. In some places, it's buried. In fact, there's one place where the cable was lifted and dragged about five kilometres towards Hongatonga Hongahapai. Yeah, it's like, well, what on earth is going on there? With portions of the cable buried under 30 metres of ash in some places, Emily reckons those fast-flowing, hot pyroclastic density currents definitely occurred. These flows of debris might also be the reason for the mysterious cable movement. If they were going fast enough, they could have reflected off underwater mountains and actually travelled back towards the volcano, dragging the cable along with them. To find out more about the rare phenomenon of volcano-generated tsunamis, I visited the Flume Lab at the University of Auckland. It's a huge warehouse filled with giant tanks, some long and narrow, others large and square. Here, Colin oversees a team trying to tease apart how things like pyroclastic flows and volcanic explosions actually generate tsunami waves. He does this by recreating them in the lab. For her PhD research, Natalia Lipieko is investigating how pyroclastic density currents 
can produce tsunamis. When a volcanic eruption erupts and you have the volcanic column, and if that collapses down the slope of the volcano, then that flowing mixture, that's called a pyroclastic density current. So it's made up of uh, volcanic particles, so, so just rocks, uh, volcanic gases and air kind of in between. And it's very, very fast, can be very, very hot as well. Some of the particles can be even like a couple of hundreds to thousands of Celsius um, and uh, on average would be tens of meters per second traveling. Um, that would be the average, but it can go up to even higher. So it's really, really destructive, which is the main reason why studying it in the field is very difficult. <laughs> Natalia is setting up her experiment in one of the long, narrow flumes waiting for the water from a recirculation system to fill up the tank. In the experimental setup we have a long flume um, that's filled with water and it is connected um, to an inclined plane. And then on that plane, uh, on the ramp, there is a reservoir um, where I put my material that's simulating the, the pyroclastic flows. Essentially she's creating a fake volcano slope, down which some fake debris will slide into the water so that she can see what waves are created under different conditions. So that whole plane is made of a, a very thin porous plate, so it has tiny, tiny holes. And that in the box below that plate, we introduce compressed air so that the whole material is fluidized. And that means that it behaves like a fluid. So it actually mimics the uh, behavior of the, of the pyroclastic density currents. The fluidized column of all of this material is then released from that reservoir. So we open the gate, it flows down the ramp um, and it enters the water and generates the waves. Of course, heating the glass beads to the kind of temperatures you see in actual pyroclastic density flows isn't really practical in the lab, but the compressed air injection to make the material behave like a fluid is enough to mimic the real thing. So I use little, little glass beads, so they are tiny, of tens of microns, uh, to simulate that flow. So they have a um, density similar ish to kind of volcanic material, and they work quite nicely when we introduce that air, so then they do behave like, like water, basically. And yeah, they enter the water, generate really nice uh, kind of first wave that's quite large, and then some smaller waves after that. Part of the material is actually carried by the wave and then a bit, uh, the rest of the material is mixing with the water and is travelling along the, uh, the flume floor. Natalia adds colourful dye to the water, a mixture of blue and hot pink. All the data I'm collecting using high-speed high cameras, so they are recording in a very slow motion. Um, and for me to process the data, I put some dye in the water, so I color the water. And it actually looks really beautiful. <laughs> and as a result, the glass beads get slightly colored. So that's why it's pink. <laughs> then the compressed air starts. The teeny glass beads are released into the water and a wave glides down the flume with blue and pink dye swirling and mixing. It's over in a flash, with the wave continuing to slosh in the tank. It's a, a challenging experiment from the perspective that uh, it's quick to run and very time consuming to set up for the next one. Uh, and so 
a lot of uh, Natalia's time is, is really preparing for the experiment, uh, getting set up and then cleaning up after the yes. experiment's finished, getting ready for the next one, processing the data. Uh, the experiment's beautiful, but they're very fast. In these pretty experiments, Natalia changes the size of the glass beads to see whether it has an effect on the wave generated. Does it make the wave bigger or slower? She's even tested out some real volcanic material collected from Lake Taupo. I'm looking at how, what, what is the effect of different particle sizes and uh, proportions of the different sizes within that mixture. How does that affect the generated waves? Whether if we have um, only small particles or only large particles, do we get bigger waves or do we get smaller waves? Or do they travel faster or what's happening with that? What I found so far is that over the range of particles that I did tested and the particle size distributions, it doesn't really matter. All the, all the mixtures that I did test, they generated waves of very similar amplitudes, very similar heights. This research will help us understand the risks posed by tsunamis arising from pyroclastic density currents. Here's Colin again. One of the things that we've learned about the Tonga eruption in January is that uh, a lot of the local tsunamis were probably forced by pyroclastic density currents. Um, yeah, for those local tsunamis, this is one of the really important source mechanisms and it's not yet that well understood. Uh, so some of the experiments that we're doing here and some of our complementary numerical modelling will be really helpful in getting a sense of how effective these are at generating waves and uh, the properties of the waves that they'll lead to. In a square-shaped tank close by is one of Dr. Yashyong Shen's experiments. Yashyong was recently awarded his PhD. For this, he modelled how submarine explosions themselves create waves. So in my first stage of my PhD, I um, did some aerojetic experiment uh, where I injected compressed air into a water to model a uh, volcanic eruption, submarine volcanic eruption. And in that experiment, I use a high-speed camera to record the wave generations. But today, he's showing me his experiment using an injection of steam. The boiler beneath the tank hisses and billows steam before a jet propels into the water tank, exploding at the surface like a fountain. Yashyong varies different parameters, like the temperature and depth of the water tank and the duration of the steam jet, to figure out which conditions will produce the biggest waves. It turns out there's a limit to the size of the wave that can be produced. And uh, for the jet duration, we found uh, for the experiment under the same conditions, when we vary the jet duration from a very small value to a very large value, we found the maximum wave heights generated um, in this experiment will increase first and then keep constant. Likewise, the depth of the surrounding water affects the size of the waves produced as well as the shape of the fountain jetting up on the water surface. For example, for eruption with a given source pressure, if the water depth is extremely deep, all the steams will be condensed underwater so it cannot generate any fountains on the free surface. If we decrease the water depth, it will generate a a dome-shaped fountain. If we further decrease it, the dome will be higher and larger. Uh, once it decreases to a very shallow depth, the shape of the fountain will transform from a dome shape to a finger shape, which also companioned with a lot of 
splashes, which means lots of energy dissipated in these shallow water eruptions. It's not always just the biggest eruption. Uh, some of Yexiong's work has demonstrated that uh, if you have very shallow water, then the biggest eruptions just blast through the water and a lot of the energy is lost to the atmosphere. So there's delicate balance in terms of which conditions generate the largest waves. In the case of Hungatonga Hungahaapai, Yashiong would classify this as a shallow water eruption. This means if the volcano had been located a bit deeper, with a bit more seawater sitting above it, it could have been an even more powerful eruption. But can these experiments, which are really simplified versions of a super complex natural phenomenon, actually tell us what's happening in volcanoes like Hungatonga Hungahaapai? It's challenging, of course. Whenever we do any laboratory work in engineering, especially in, in fluid mechanics and hydraulics, we have what you call scale effects, uh, which is you might be able to shrink down the geometry of something to fit into your lab, and there are scaling relationships that tell us how what we measure in the lab can uh, reflect in the field. But not everything scales. What we really aimed to do in this project is view the problem from a number of different complementary angles. We didn't expect to get any field data. Uh, you don't roll the dice with geological timescales that something like this would happen. That was just lucky in a certain uh, sense uh, that one of these happened when we were wrapping up our project. Suddenly, a lot of people realised that volcanic eruptions can generate tsunamis. They can be very dangerous, but also we don't have the same level of predictive capability that we have for underwater earthquakes. But with the Flume Lab experiments, combined with numerical modelling and now the actual data from the Tongan eruption, Colin reckons we've gained a bit more insight into how volcanoes generate tsunamis. And for a geologically active country like Aotearoa, getting a better understanding of these hazards can help us prepare. Here's Emily again. We have a lot of volcanoes in New Zealand. I mean, there's the Auckland Volcanic Field, and there's the Taupo Volcanic Zone, and so offshore, you know, you've got White Island, Fakari there, you've got Mare Island, Tuhua, and then further afield, sort of as you go up the Tonga Kermadec, you've got even more volcanoes. And so we want to understand, well, how big a tsunami can a pyroclastic density current of a certain size cause? And depending on the answer... It might mean that because, you know, certainly if there was a really big pyroclastic density current somewhere like White Island, I'd be wor really worried about the Bay of Plenty. But how worried should I be? So, you know, if we can sort of say, okay, if the pyroclastic density current is this big, this is how big the tsunami is. If it's this big, this is how big it is. There's also the question of, okay, well, what if it was something further up, um, sort of up near the Kermadec Islands or that? Do we need to worry about them? Or are they, are they far enough away that a tsunami-generated pyroclastic density current there isn't going to be an issue for New Zealand? It would only be an issue locally. These are the sort of things that we're trying to sort of pick apart and understand so that we can better understand what is the, the hazard that we face in New Zealand from volcanic tsunamis. Thanks to Dr. Emily Lane, hydrodynamic scientist at NIWA, and to Dr. Colin Whitaker, Dr. Yashi Yongshen, and Natalia Lipienko from the University of Auckland Flume Lab. This episode was reported, produced, and presented by Auckland-based science communicator Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by William Saunders. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of Podcasts and Series. 
You can find and follow Our Changing World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.